We continue our sermon series from Paul's, what we call, first letter to the church at Corinth. So if you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, chapter 18 through 27. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 27. Now I'm going to ask you some questions. Do not raise your hands. You're going to answer these in your own mind. Everybody got that? In your own mind only. How many of you were Phi Beta Kappa? Maybe you graduated cum laude or magna cum laude or summa cum laude. Or some of you graduated o laude just to get through. <laughs> How many of you were Division I athletes at a prestigious Division I school? How many of you have won the Miss America contest? Are there any homecoming queens in our midst? How many of you were listed in who's who or were voted most likely to succeed? Well, if you answered yes to any of these questions, I've got some good news for you. God can still use you. He's going to have a little bit more trouble, but God can still use you just like he uses common folk. On the other hand, if you've not done or achieved the things that the world prizes so highly, God is really going to delight in using you. God desires to get glory through us. That's why, quite frankly, God most often uses ordinary folk. So maybe you were not at the top of your class. That probably means that you're just the kind of God that, guy that God is going to use to shake up this whole world. For with God, relationships with Him is more important than scholarship with this world. With God, relationship with Him is more important than scholarship with this world. The story of Christ turns the wisdom of this world on its head. A man hangs like a criminal on the cross. And we believe that in that event and in that person, God was at work in a way that forgive our sins for all eternity. It's a strange story isn't it? It really comes across as foolish to us at first. But God has a habit of turning the conventional wisdom on his head. The story of the death of Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is not a message that makes a lot of sense to those who are learned and esteemed on the high hills or the hallowed halls of the university. In fact, those who are most brilliant, those with the highest IQs, sometimes have the hardest time accepting the foolishness of the gospel. Isn't life strange? Because some think they're so smart, they have the most trouble ever getting there. A child is born bright, and ever since he's, that those around have made that child know that he or she is particularly bright and has special gifts. We call her gifted and talented, or him gifted and talented. He struggles with a sense of over-self-importance. He's prideful, and prideful always lead, pride always leads to blindness. Those with incredible minds find themselves in universities where their paths for them are already cut. They must walk upon a pre-established path of thought. They have a reputation to maintain. They want to publish in peer-reviewed journals. They want to circulate among their august peers. And they find it difficult, therefore, to openly accept the story of the gospel. 
And since it's not acceptable in many of those hallways to be religious, certainly not to be a Christian within those circles, many discount the story of Jesus without ever experiencing its power. In other ways, the gospel's too simple for this group. They have struggled with lofty philosophical musings on the pathetic state of the human condition. And they're understandably reluctant to believe that simply repenting of one's sins and following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior could possibly be the answer. Foolishness. How could it be so easy? Think of all the superior minds of the ages who have wrestled with these issues without arriving to a true solution to the problem. How could Christ possibly be the answer when they're still trying to find the right questions? Well, look at verse 18. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The story of Jesus to the ordinary human ear is foolishness. But to those of us who know the power of that salvation, it is the work of God. First thing I want to say this morning, God always works in God's own way. God always works in God's own way. God's ways rarely make sense to humanity. His thoughts are so high above our thoughts. His ways are so high above our ways. How could we expect anyone to really understand the plan or the mind of God? What Paul is saying is something like this. Let me translate it this way for you. So you think the gospel is a form of wisdom. How foolish can you get? Look at this message. It is based upon the story of a crucified Messiah, a Savior who himself dies. Who in the name of wisdom would have ever dreamed that up? Only God is so wise is to work through foolishness. Did it make any sense for Sarah when Abraham was 100 years of age and she herself was way beyond the bearing of, ch of, ch of birth age? A son of a promise named Isaac? That's not to say that's not the way of the world. That's the way of God. Would you have ever made a bet that David with his slingshot, could go against the giant Goliath, the grandest of the armor of the Philistines, a child against a Herculean hero of Philistia? No, but it was God's way. Or did it make sense when Gideon was going to battle for God to say to him, I want you to cut down your army. I want to win this battle, not by the many, but by the few. Get rid of some men. Because God wanted them to know that God was a giver of victory. Does it make any sense for the Messiah to be born to a poor Jewish carpenter in a nothing town like Bethlehem? No room for him, born in a barn in a cave? We would have never planned the arrival of the Messiah that way, but it was the way of God. God's ways never make sense to man. And the gospel makes the least sense of all. The Jewish people had so longed for a Messiah, a new Moses to deliver, who would come to lead them out of the oppression from the foreign nations, out of the oppression of the Roman Empire. 
Much as Moses had come and led the people of God to freedom from the oppression of the Egyptians. They had longed for one who would bring new manna, a new Moses, new hope, a new power to God's people. How does it make sense when the Messiah shows up as an untrained rabbi with a bunch of ruffians for followers? And when he gets there, he says, you know, the kingdom of God is not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. It's for the Gentiles, too. And then he says things like, if you want to save your life, you must lose it. If you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to be the leader, you must be the servant. And watch him. This so-called Savior can't even save himself, it seems, because his knuckles are nailed to the crossbeam of a cross. It just doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. The cross stands in an absolute, uncompromising contradiction to human wisdom. Look at verse 19. It's a, it's a quotation from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 29. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. This passage comes as part of the judgment oracle against Judah. The Assyrians are pressing upon Judah, and the wise men in Judah said, we need to form an alliance. We need to form an alliance with Egypt. And in fact, it was the threat of that alliance with Egypt that brought the Assyrians upon the people of God. That wasn't God's way to depend on Egypt, but rather God sent one angel and one evening to slay 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and the pagan army fled in fear. God's ways are foolishness. Look at verse 22. The Jews want a sign. They want a new Moses who will show up and turn the water into blood or the staff into a snake, who will make the water stand on its edge. They want a new Moses. The Jews are looking for a sign. The Messiah to them would be a man of power, not a man of death. And then he says the Greeks, well, their proverbial love of learning, they look for wisdom. They want things to be presented in a logical, compelling manner to them. The Messiah should be a rhetorician who knows how to debate and put forth his philosophical truths. But no. God has blown away all apparently reasonable criteria. The Messiah, the plan of God turns out to be a crucified criminal. The Messiah is not victorious, or so it appears. He finds life through death. Second thing I want you to see, the world's wisdom is sadly empty. The world's wisdom is sadly empty. Look at verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, through the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, but God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Look at verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The world's wisdom and ways are, are sadly empty. 
We can do some really dumb things in life, can't we? At the very height of the energy crisis, I heard about a man who wanted to siphon out gasoline and go and sell it. Gasoline in those days was like gold, and, well, he got a little more than he bargained for. He made the mistake, and instead of putting the hose into the gas tank, he put it into the RV sewage tank before he began the siphoning. And, well, when the police arrived, they saw a man crumpled in a fetal position, screaming he was sick and he didn't feel good. And, well, the owner decided he wouldn't press any charges because that was the best laugh he'd ever had in his whole <laughs> life. Or right about the lady who called, she had a new computer, called the technical support line and said things weren't functioning as they should. The technician's first words of advice were, you need to open a window to launch the program. After about 15 minutes, she said, it's really cold in here. Is it okay now if I go ahead and shut my windows? And if you don't know why that's a joke, then, well, <laughs> I can't fix it. Or Dr. Eric Ritter, professor at Hofstra University. He came, he did an experiment with sharks. He thought that if he could use yoga breathing to get his heart rate down low enough that even while he was standing in bait-filled water, the sharks would think that he was a co-predator and not the bait. Well, it didn't turn out for, well, for Dr. Eric Ritter in the shark tank. He just missed it. Or Luke Goodrich in San Jose, California, was burning garbage in his backyard, which, by the way, is against the law. And while he was burning his garbage, the fire got away with him. It burned 100 acres. It took 400 firefighters and six helicopters. And by the way, Luke Goodrich is the captain of the San Jose Fire Department. <laughs> the American historian, Will Durant, defined education as a progressive discovery of our own ignorance. Education is a progressive discovery of our own ignorance. We can add up all the knowledge of all the smart people in this room with all their varying degrees, and we know nothing. Wednesday night, we had a packed house at, at our supper here at the church, and I asked a senior adult gentleman, I said, what do you know? He said, I don't know anything. He said, when I was young, I thought I knew everything. But now I realize I don't know anything. I agreed. I said at 32, when I first started pastoring this church, I had all the answers. Now I have all the questions. Our education is a progressive discovery of our own ignorance. Sometimes I feel like the football player at Florida State, Bobby Bowden, was in the coach of Florida State Seminoles. Asking about, they were asking about one of his star linebackers. He says, this guy doesn't even know the meaning of the word fear. In fact, he said, I've looked at his grades. He doesn't know the meaning of a lot of words, but he's a very good <laughs> football player. As an educated culture, we know more today than we have ever known before, and we still really don't know anything. All a good education does is teach you to ask the right questions, learn where to search for good answers, and learn how to organize your thoughts and your ideas. But all of that is not compared to the wisdom of God. There's a third thing I want you to see. Everything is level at the foot of the cross. Everything is level at the foot of the cross. Look at verse 26. For I consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, 
Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not, he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. Eugene Peterson translates the passage this way. Hey, friends, take a look around. <laughs> Those of you who are called into this life, I don't see many of the brightest or the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. It's not for the best. It's not for the brightest. It is for those who are called by God to understand the revealed word of the cross. In fact, Jesus' ministry attracted more sinners than he ever attracted saints. Look what Paul says first in 27. He says, we look around into God's camp. We have the foolish things or the foolish ones, verse 27. The word there is moros. You hear it, don't you? The word moron. Moros is the Greek word. Moron. Look around. God is using the foolish things to overcome the things that are. Secondly, he says, look at verse 27, the weak ones whom God has chosen to use. The word for weak is those with a, a physical infirmity. You are feeling weak or sick. Well, congratulations. God is going to do mighty things through your frail body for his strength is made perfect in your weakness. You remember the apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed that God would take it away and God did not. And then verse 28, there's the base ones, the base ones. That means low birth, ignoble, without pedigree. Maybe you're not part of the aristocracy, not born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You're just the kind of man or woman God is looking for. Next, verse 28, the despised ones. Are you one that the world would write off as having no account, no value? Treated with contempt or scorned by others? Do some people say, you'll never amount to anything? That's terrific. You're just the one that God wants to use. And finally, he uses those who are not. Those who are not are those who are completely overlooked. They're so low on the totem pole, they don't even get despised. They're not even considered good enough to be scorned. They're not listed in who's who. They find their name listed in who's not. They're alone. They're nobody. Why does God use ordinary folks? Because God didn't want anyone boasting about their own strength. God gives ordinary people extraordinary power to do his will. There's a story. The particular community was having a week of champions. It's long ago. They're trying to reach the students in the community for Christ. 
They brought in professional athletes and amateur athletes and some of the highest caliber athletes gave the strongest possible testimonies. In fact, they had Paul Anderson. You don't know the name Paul Anderson. He went to Furman University, became the world's strongest man. He weighed, I looked a picture, look him up when I got this story, 380 pounds and there wasn't an ounce of fat on him. He was so strong. He was two-time national champion Olympic weightlifter. He had biceps the size of coconuts. Paul Anderson, he got up. They asked him the question, were you ever, were you ever a 94-pound weakling? He said, yes, when I was four years of old age, I was a 94-pound weakling. His testimony was clear and strong. If the strongest man in the world needs Jesus, then you do too. Oh, that, that went over well. The next Sunday morning, the pastor was preaching, and a student came forward to accept Jesus, and the pastor put together, the student had been at the, the week of champions, and had heard Paul Anderson, and he asked the question, what did Mr. Anderson say that made you want to follow Jesus? Oh, it wasn't anything Mr. Anderson said, the student replied. It was George Wilson that made me know I need Jesus. George Wilson? The pastor couldn't even remember George Wilson being in the lineup of athletes. Then he remembered at the end they had an open mic and George was a paraplegic in a wheelchair who gave a testimony. He wasn't even part of the official program. But he, he spoke about the joy of the Lord, the, a shining of the noonday sun. And the senior said, Pastor, if God could bring that much joy to George Wilson. I can't wait to see what joy God is going to bring to me. On the night that the strongest man in the world was standing up for Jesus, it was a man in a wheelchair who brought the student to Christ. It doesn't matter if you're in the room this morning, you're watching by television or you're live streaming. No matter if you got an eighth grade education or a PhD, it makes no difference. You can never be wise enough to figure out the ways of God. At the foot of the cross, everything is absolutely equal. Everybody's treated the same. Because, after all, we're all guilty sinners. In the presence of a holy God who need redemption, the redemption that can only come from the foolishness of the cross, the gift of his son on the cross. Lastly, the gospel is the power of God. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Verse 24, it is the power of God and those the wisdom of God. Verse 18, to those who are being saved, the gospel, the word of the cross, is the power of God. Paul is saying to those in the Corinthian community, those who were looking for an esoteric philosophy or a body of faith, that those who follow Christ are not to be counted among the rhetoricians. Rather, it is something altogether different. If you're looking for a new philosophy, you will not get it. It is the story that God was at work on Calvary, 
There was something about the power of God displayed and the crucifixion of that rabbi named Jesus. And God was at work in his crucifixion, and God was at work in his resurrection, and by that transaction, everything has changed. It's an, it's an irony, isn't it? That in giving up his life, Jesus led us all to eternal life. Then becoming a servant, he displayed that he was the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. That the one who is absolutely innocent of any wrongdoing, the sinless Savior, is crucified between two criminals. And that those who had the least religion were most likely to respond to the story. The gospel and only the story of Jesus that's where all the power of God is found. Today, if you don't have hope, the gospel is the power of God. Today, if you come fearful about the future, I want you to hear me say, the gospel is the power of God. This morning, if you are absolutely rattled by uncertainty in your life, I want you to hear me say today, the story of Jesus, the gospel is the power of God. If you feel unloved, you need to know right there at the foot of the cross, you are loved like you've never been loved before. The gospel is the power of God. Paul says, look around. You're a nobody and a group of nobodies, and that'll work just fine because it's God's wisdom, God's ways, the story of Jesus, a story that man could never make up, that the creator becomes part of the creation, puts on flesh, is pierced and crucified, dies, and while no one's looking for it, despite his own prophetic prediction, he rises again. This odd story, and only this odd story, contains the power of God. Let us pray. Oh, God, maybe someone hears this story with new ears and sees it with new eyes today. We want to be the best and the brightest when reality is we need to be humble. For the good news story, the gospel, it contains the hand and the work of God. God, I pray if there's someone here this morning, maybe one of these students who spent this weekend intensely studying God's Word who would come forward this day and say, I want to accept Jesus as my Savior. I'm not sure I've done that. The gospel is the power of God. Maybe there are others who need to come and be a part of this fellowship, student or otherwise. Say, I want to be a part of a church that will preach the gospel, the foolishness of God as the truth of God. And we'll work hard to make sure the whole world knows Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. 
Amen.